Hello, this is Dylan Pappenfuss, and welcome to the Financial Executive Podcast. Tax season has come and gone, and today we're going to speak with Professor Tori Lewis from Brigham Young University on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, one year on. Professor Lewis is the past chair of the Tax Executive Committee of the American Institute of CPAs in Washington, D.C. In this role, he has testified six times before the United States Senate Finance Committee and the House Committee on Small Business. Welcome to the show, Professor Lewis. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Getting started, who were the biggest winners and losers on the business side from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? It's a great question. You know, uh, whether you're a winner or a loser depends on kind of how you're structured and also what you do. Um, it would be, you know, it would be a little inappropriate to say that there were um, this specific company or that specific company. But just to talk in general, who are the winners? Multinationals were winners. Companies that had international dealings, uh, they're winners in the sense that the international tax reform probably paved a way for them to uh, pay lower taxes overall. It also gave them incentives to uh, keep money, uh, keep money in property inside the United States, which allowed them a lot more flexibility than they probably had in the past. Um, so over time, you know, multinationals are, I think are going to see a big benefit. Uh, but the good news is, is that it wasn't just f- about international tax reform. And we could talk about more about that later if you wanted, but really it was also about domestically, but primarily the companies that really are going to benefit domestically are the ones that are um, capital intensive. They have a lot of fixed assets. Um, the bonus depreciation was extended for several years. Uh, it was going to um, essentially go away and it was extended for several more years. And so what that really means is, is that companies can purchase uh, fixed assets and expense it just like you would a wage expense or some other expense for taxes. So you get an immediate tax deduction for capital um, purchases. And why that's important is because it, it really effectively lowers the cost of that purchase, right? From a time value of money, you end up saving money, a significant amount of money, just because of the fact that you have a cash outlay today and you don't have to wait for, say, five years or seven or something to get the money back in terms of tax savings. Uh, You get that tax savings all up front. Uh, In addition to that, probably the the other biggest winner was probably your C corporations. Um, uh, Companies, businesses are operated as a C corporation. They're they're the ones that saw the the largest uh, year-over-year tax reduction. They went from, uh, let's say, a, a, a rate of at least 34% for many 35 uh, flat rate down to a flat rate of 21%. So picking up that differential of, say, 14% or 13% uh, in terms of their tax or federal tax was a significant increase to uh, the, the bottom line for cash flow. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, Keeping on that, how did TCJA change the relative benefits of being organized as a flow through versus as a C Corp? Great question. You know, um, historically, tax rates. Um, you know, uh, the the historical tax rates for corporations for a C corporation now are are, signific- are, are relatively low. Uh, we haven't seen these kind of low rates um, for a very long time. 
So what happened when the C corporation rates dropped and understanding that the flow through taxation of the partnerships and the S corporations for businesses, their profits are going to go through and still continue to be taxed at the individual rates, which although there was a rate reduction there, Dylan, it went from 39.6 to maybe a max 37. It's still significantly high relative to the C corp rate. So um, one of the big benefits, uh, like we mentioned, was the C corp rate dropping. And so what you've really seen is you've seen a lot of, um, and I think if you're a flow through or you're a C corporation, uh, because the, the paradigm, because the, the system that we operate in has shifted so much, you're seeing a lot of people rethink their form, particularly if you're in a flow through and uh, and going to a, a C corporation. So the best way to look at it is what are the benefits of being in a flow through? A flow through would give you one level of tax, um, like partnership uh, or an S corporation would give you one level of tax rather than two. Um, being in a flow through gives you an opportunity to really adjust um, your tax basis in your uh, in your businesses. Uh, your payroll tax benefits that poten- potentially you can take advantage of if you're in a small business. Uh, you have probably a little bit more greater flexibility with um, c- compensation with equity, those types of things. Uh, but but honestly, you know that that C corporation rate being lowered down to 21 percent is is um, is very attractive. So what have we seen? Well, last year in 2018, KKR converted from a partnership to a C corp. Blackstone just announced that they're going to change um, to a C corporation. Uh, they cited things um, primarily uh, from a benefit standpoint as they've been giving, you know, you know, probably as you're aware, Blackstone is what's called a publicly traded partnership where you buy them on the stock exchange, but it doesn't operate like a normal corporate stock. Instead, what happens is, is every spring you're given a piece of paper in the mail. It's called a substitute K-1 um, that can delay when you actually file your your return for an individual. And in addition, what they've cited primarily is that they're going to have this increased amount of uh, ownership potential. There's a lot of owners that just simply won't own a partnership. Tax-exempt entities, index funds, foreign owners will typically uh, stay away from it. So they think they're going to double the number of of equity investors that could potentially uh, get involved as well. And 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 then quite frankly, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's that rate play, and then it's I think just like I said, I think I, I I would highlight the fact that these equity ownership issues tend to be more flexible in a C corp than a than a flow through. That's interesting. Thank you. Um, Let's shift gears here and let's talk about Section 199A. Where are the rules at right now and where do you think they could be improved? Okay. So this is... So if, if you go back historically and you look at when Congress is debating this lowering of the corporate rate, the C-corporation rate, the hue and cry from the American public, and it depends on how you define small business, Dylan. People go back and forth as to what that really means. The Small Business Administration has a number and, you know, is it by number of employees, by revenue, but a significant 90 percent, like a big number of, uh, of businesses done by small business. So when the law is being passed, TCJA, there was a request to Congress that, look, if you're going to lower the corporate rate, the C-corporation rate, and we're not going to tell you what that rate should be, but if it's going to go down, it, you know, to make it more comp 
comparable and make it more competitive and more uh, entity neutral, you should also lower the rate for um, for businesses being conducted in these flow throughs or through sole proprietorship. So the the theory of the 199A is basic. It's we want the government says if you do a U.S. if you conduct a U.S. business and you pay workers in the U.S. you have W-2s that are paid. Um, we want to give you a tax break. I mean, we all like coupons, right? I mean, coupons something we live with. So we, we go to these business owners and say, we'll give you 20% off on your tax rate. So rather than paying 100%, you know, 100% of the tax rate, how about just pay 80%? That's an, that's an easy thing to describe in, a, in an elevator speech. It's a very problematic thing to do in terms of calculation. So what you've really seen over the past year, particularly with proposed regs and now final regs that came out early in 19, 2019, is an attempt to, um, to boil down how that easily understood concept comes out. I mean, what, what do we mean by, you know, having business in the U.S., a trader business? What do we mean by some of these terms? Well, some of the things that we're most concerned about is where we where the conflict lies today, which is Congress didn't want um, service businesses, by and large, being able to take advantage of this discount, this coupon. They were afraid of uh, abuse and gamesmanship. So as they created this rule, they said there's certain industries that, you know, certain service industries or what we call SSTBs wouldn't be allowed to take advantage of the deduction. The problem is, is how that is defined and, and in business, we have such gray areas. So when it first came out, for instance, uh, healthcare providers are one of the ones that are listed on the bad list. You can't take this deduction if you're, if you're doing those kinds of things. Um, so the first question was, well, what if I drive an ambulance? Um, you know, is that, is that healthcare or is that just an expensive cab ride? You know, so th- there was, there was all kinds of gray areas, even amongst what you thought might be, you know, siloed off. So we're seeing a lot of discrepancy on what exactly is in the, on the good list and what's on the bad list. Uh, and I don't think you know, we've gotten some resolve with the regulations, but I think that's one where you'll see improvement over time as people get more definitive as to um, what that means. Uh, rental properties are another big area. Um, one of the things I said, you know, we want you to do a trader business in the U.S. We'll stop right there and describe what do you mean by a trader business? It, there's oftentimes you do things which maybe is an investment, but it's not done regularly or continuous enough that it rises to the level of a trader business under U.S. tax law. So again, that was left wide open. It just said, this is what you need to be. Look at the court cases when the court cases have been inconsistent. So um, if you're talking to uh, folks who own rental properties, say, you know, a condo they rent or something, um, being truthful, it's really um, very difficult to to say with any level of confidence whether or not they qualify for this deduction. So again, there has been some movement there. Um, there was a safe harbor created where the government said, well, as long as you're doing enough uh, act, enough hours spent per year in this activity um, and you elect this safe harbor, we'll, we'll just treat you like your trader business and you'd be qualified. The challenge, of course, is 
the 250 hours they set is so high that realistically there'll be lots of, of rentals will be below that that we still don't have confidence in. And then the, really the real big issue, Dylan, I think that you that you could see some improvement here would be to have this made permanent. I, I think it's important to remember that this deduction, uh, this 20% deduction is only for uh, year, tax years 2018 through 2025. 2026, this deduction is scheduled to to, um, to sunset, and uh, we'll go back to the old law, which won't include this. And that that's important because if you think to yourself, you're in year 2023 or 2024, and you're trying to make a decision about what entity do I want to be, um, how do I want to structure my affairs, you might be looking at making a decision that may be only applicable for one or maybe two years, and then assuming, or maybe you, you should or shouldn't assume that the law won't be extended or will be extended. I think that's really where it could be improved most is getting some sort of certainty, either sending clear messages that this is going to um, just be a short-lived provision, seven years, or giving taxpayers some level of confidence that today in 2019, they can structure their affairs and have uh, and have it go beyond uh, 2025. That's interesting. It sounds like the taxpayers need a little bit more clarification on this one for sure. Absolutely. You know, with certain provisions of TCJNA, especially with international, um, we've seen a big degree of uncertainty and a lot of unintended consequences for American companies. How should, you know, a tax professional, a tax director at a company prepare their C-suite for the continuing uncertainty and surprises with TCJ? Okay, um, that's the real magical question. Um, first thing to recognize is that the whole uh, paradigm has shifted. So up until um, up, up until the year before last, uh, you know, at least since the Kennedy administration, since the early '60s, the planning and international has all been basically about the same thing, which was you um, y- you maybe uh, invent a company in the U.S. You, when it's obvious it's going to be successful, you take your intellectual property and uh, other key assets and you move them offshore into tax-favored jurisdictions where the the IP can be used and uh, owned. And if you structure your, if you restructure your affairs in a certain way, you would always pay U.S. tax on your U.S. earnings. But what you'd be allowed to do is essentially pay tax in a foreign jurisdiction, presumably at a lower rate, and then you'd be allowed to defer, if done appropriately, defer the tax uh, in these foreign con- countries. And and if you never brought the, the money that you earned back into the U.S., in other words, you just simply grew your global organization on a, uh, on a tax-deferred basis, you'd be allowed to continue that indefinitely. And we'd see in financial statements with these so-called permanently reinvested earnings where companies would just declare to their stockholders, hey, you know, we paid 5% tax in this foreign jurisdiction. If we brought the money back to the U.S., we'd have to pay another 30%. We're never bringing it back. So they would just essentially permanently only record 5% as the tax burden on that earnings in that foreign jurisdiction. And the other 30, they would just essentially walk away from. Well, that's all changed now. The government went out uh, in response to the OECD's 
uh, Beps project in particular, and um, and changed a lot of the um, the regime, a lot of the paradigm that we have. And so, what does it look like now? Well, I think that's the first thing I tell you for the C-suite is you've got. To, I think this is one of those areas where you can't just say, "Well, the tax people are working on this." I think if I'm a CEO or a CFO, I need to understand how it's changed. You got to remember that a lot of these um, chief executives grew up in a time where they were under the regime I just described. And in their mind, when they took global supply chain in college or some of these others, they learned the basics of this deferral idea. Well, now we don't really have that deferral idea anymore. Uh, with this most recent act, we we we, um, we got introduced to something called the participation dividend receipt deduction, participation exemption, which basically means if you own more than 10% of a foreign company uh, and is structured a basic way, you can pretty much just pay tax in that foreign jurisdiction and uh, be done with it. And the additional incremental tax is not going to come back to the U.S. ever. Uh, there's also other incentives, um, this so-called guilty tax, G-I-L-T-I. Uh, they put out a beat tax and also something called FIDI, F-D-I-I. All this operates this way. U.S. companies are going to be incentivized now to keep their intellectual property inside the U.S. The incentive to take it offshore to a holding company in Europe or something like that is very much diminished. Now, there can be still some benefit, but it's not nearly as attractive as it once was. So I think the first thing you got to do as a, as, a, as a tax director in particular is educate the C-suite so they understand that, look, the goals and objectives before building your global empire on a tax-deferred basis no longer is, is important. Um, maybe the next time you have an opportunity to move intellectual property offshore, the better answer is to keep it inside the U.S. Um, your ability to take dividends and repatriate cash is going to change now, too. Um, uh, that you'll see a, a change. So in theory, I think the U.S., at least from the congressional um, publications that they put out, the, the Blue Book and things, they, they basically said their objective wasn't necessarily to cause companies that are already foreign to restructure. Because I think as you probably appreciate, these decisions are fairly sticky. It's, it's not easy to move your IP back into the U.S. It's not easy to shut down a plant of 1,000 employees in this foreign country and move it back to the U.S. I think what their intent was, and this is the second thing, is is that okay? If you you know if you might be incentivized to bring stuff back, but more we want to incentivize you not to push things off out into the future. So I think it's getting a, a gauge of what the what the paradigm shift has been, getting a, a working knowledge of some of these new additional taxes and incentives. Uh, those would be those would be important. Then the third thing I would I would I would tell you that I would want to know if I'm a board member or in a C-suite is I'd want to know what the rest of the world's doing. I mean, let, let's be honest. They're not going to sit back and take this, right? So the U.S. says we're going to lower our corporate rate, which is a huge benefit to 21%. And combined with that, this international tax reform, now we're going to, now our companies are going to be motivated to stay here. Well, the other reaction that can happen, which we're seeing, 
is the foreign countries will say, okay, well, we can play that game too, and we'll lower our rate, and we'll go back in a situation where we're now more attractive than we were before as well. So, you know, uh, you know, if you look at it, if you look at the G7 average, the average rate was like 26.9% for a tax rate, and we dropped it below that. Um, and over the last few months, you've seen people like the UK, France, Sweden, Belgium, others um, have announced rate cuts. So, you know, the, 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 the saying in business is it's a race to the bottom. The idea is if we cut our rate, you'll cut yours and we'll cut ours. But we're getting to the point where the differential, there's just not a lot to give. So I think the U.S. is still very confident that, that the incentives are going to be here to keep in the U.S. But I think as, a, as a, an executive, those are the three things that I would want to know most. That's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, sticking with the rate, we know there's a lot of debate and discussion on what the corporate tax rate should be. Um, and we're hearing a lot of people, especially in Congress, saying that they should increase or even decrease the rate further. What do you foresee happening with corporate tax rates moving forward? It's mm, a hard question, yeah. So, um, well, first of all, if anyone tells you they know what's going to happen, they're not being truthful. Um, but what is possible? Let's talk about that. First of all, let's just remember that when the rate came out at 21%, that was a compromise, okay? It was it was 20% until it wasn't. They couldn't quite balance at the very last hour, and it got bumped to 21. So it, the, the plug to balance tends to be that, that rate. So you get all the rest right. Oh, we'll take this deduction away. We'll give them this incentive. We'll do this. We'll give them a credit. But in the end, to kind of make everything balance out to their budget, the rate tends to slip. So, um, you know, there, there's been varied reactions to, to the rate. I, I'd say that there is a possibility that the rate could move back up. There's been some congressional uh, folks who have, who have said that they think it might be too low. I think one thing to, to get a sense on of what might happen is to look at what the companies did with the rate reduction, right? So the idea was Congress said, we're going to lower the rate because we want you to reinvest in your in your employees, reinvest in your company, and and do those kinds of things. And there was a varied reaction. So if if you look at the various um, companies, some some gave thousand dollar bonuses to their employees, some put it back into capital expenditures, um, some increased the four hundred one k matches, some did additional charitable contribution spending, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, that's on one hand. On the other hand, you had some companies who actually chose to do buybacks, stock buybacks. Um, you know, and you can look about, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, there was a, um, a special tax holiday, let's call it a rate holiday for foreign earnings. There was a one-time ability for companies to bring back profits and not pay the same kind of level of tax that they otherwise would have owed on this deferral regime. And there's been a lot of empirical studies about that and, and how people behave when that money came back. And I'm not exactly sure it was as pure as Congress had hoped. There was a lot of stock buybacks. When I think at the time, Congress was hoping that that money would trickle out into to the everyday employee, and it wouldn't. So I guess, you know, moving back to your direct question um, with the geopolitical risk, 
what's the probability of the corporate moving? I, I, you know, it, it, one thing's certain, and that is the rate doesn't stay where it is for very long. Uh, this particular rate we've had, the 34, 35, the graduated bracket, that stayed for quite a while. It's been that way for, I don't know, 20 years or something. Uh, but because the 21 was so arbitrary, my sense is at some point in the near future, you're going to see a lot of pressure either from a rate, a rate, or a rate revenue raiser that Congress might be interested in or uh, a simply a reaction to something political. But um, 21 is relatively low uh, historically, so keep that in mind. And, and so, you know, could it could it creep back up? You know, I think there's a lot of companies, particularly these that, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of companies like KKR and, and and such who have converted permanently to a C-Corp, I think they're under the belief that it's going to be at least low, even if it goes up slightly. And I think that's what you're seeing a lot of companies guess and anticipate. But, you know, with everything else uh, in Congress, I think you just have to recognize that the only thing certain is uncertainty. That's good advice. Thank you. Um, and then just one last question. Um, Professor Lewis, you testified before Congress. Um, I think most of us don't really understand what that's like. Um, would you just briefly tell us what it was like to testify about TCJNA before Congress, before this was getting passed? Sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I know this about taxes in general, and that is no matter where you are, no matter what your position is with your company or, you know, um, where you are in society and life with your investments, those kinds of things, or just working, everyone's interested in taxes deeply, at least one return, their own, right? Everyone cares. Um, so there's always a lot of emotion when um, taxes are being um, discussed, tax reform. And in this particular TCJA, there was an individual component that touched a lot of people's lives, state taxes, mortgage interest, things that have been pretty big staples. And in the business side in particular, and when I the particular hearing I was at for this, uh, there was protest. There was a lot of um, a lot of anger over it. I viewed that this was just a simple corporate um, give out handout from Congress. Um, but I will say this: that most of the most of the congressional offices are pretty open to ideas, and so and those ideas typically come from the business community, either through their trade associations or through the businesses themselves. Um, and it doesn't always have to be a formal lobbying effort; it can be grassroots, particularly with the individual congressmen uh, in their in their jurisdictions or a senator. You get with them, and and um, they tend to and they tend to listen, particularly when you talk about the impact, good and bad, of a particular provision. I think in this particular one, what you have to recognize with this is th that although the press really only started picking up on the on the um, on the passage about 90 days before it actually happened, this was a culmination of about four years of work. And during that time, there was lots of hearings and lots of debates and lots of input. So one of the things that I, I learned was that Congress moves very deliberately but slowly. And so the time for a reform isn't 30 days, 60 days before something gets passed. At that point, it's pretty late in the process. Um, but rather, if you go back historically and you look at how we ended up with some of the provisions for TCGA, they're really a culmination of many years of work. So one of the interesting observations I made was is that some of the things that made it were some of the ideas have been discussed that we've been promoting for years. And it just simply took a time for them to become ripe and to them to be included in. 
the other thing is is that um, uh, the other thing is is it's interesting that most that most um, senators in particular or Congress people they 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 generally get up to speed on certain aspects of the bill themselves, but it's so sophisticated and so complicated that they, you couldn't possibly expect them to know everything on that and then turn around the next mor- morning and be an expert in banking. So the other thing is, is that their staff become very critical. Um, what their staff know ends up being what the, what their bosses know, the senators from, for instance. So the other thing that was interesting was how involved the staff really become with some of these finer details. They're the ones that are carrying more of the weight, understanding the input impact, uh, so they can advise their bosses. So I think the main thing is, is, is that, um, uh, getting involved, getting involved early, being patient, recognizing that it takes a while for ideas to come to fruition. It's not always going to be a, uh, you know, a, a last minute thing that's going to win the day. Uh, but, but I will say from my experience that I, I feel like, uh, they listen overall and, uh, ideas that, uh, you have, or, you know, Dylan or anyone else out there that have, that they have, that they think would make the business community better should be brought forward and, uh, circulated with a little bit of patience and, uh, and again, working with the staff. And I think all those can, uh, I think all those can come to fruition at some point, at least can be heard. Professor Lewis, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, Dylan, for having me. Good luck to you. You too.